So we're going to look at this title, our passage today under the title, Love Poured Out, and we encourage you to turn to Romans 5 in your Bible. I'm sure it'll help you as we look at this together. John Lennox is maybe a name that some of you might know. He is a professor of pure mathematics at Oxford University. He is also, or he's particularly, he's a man from Armagh, Armagh City originally, but he's probably best known as a man involved in apologetics, defending Christianity from the likes of Richard Dawkins. And if you ever look on YouTube, I'm debating with Dawkins, he's the one person I've seen that can really put Dawkins in his place with the, just his pure logic of argument. But in thinking about defending Christianity, John Lennox says this, but the hardest question that Christians can face from those who claim to be atheists. And he says this, the question is this, if there is a good God who is all-powerful, how can he allow suffering? And that's a very real question. It can be a very personal question for people who are going through suffering. So this, there's this good God who's all-powerful. How or why does he allow suffering? And then he says it's really making sense of a world in which there is beauty, that which is good, and bombs, that which is bad. And Lennox is very helpful in this. He says in pure mathematics, if you cannot solve one question, you change the question. Now, young people, don't try that in your exams. I don't think you'll get away with it. But he says in pure mathematics, if you can't solve the question, you change and ask a different question. And he says to those who ask that question, if there's this good God who's all-powerful, then why is there suffering? He says, the question to ask is this. Is there any evidence anywhere in the universe to show that there is a God you can trust in this? He says, that's the question to put to people. Is there evidence anywhere in the universe to show there's a God you can trust? And the answer to that has to be the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ where we see God who comes down and shares in our suffering. And that's the answer to that question. That's the only place where hope and sense can be found in that question, at the cross of Calvary. And we're going to think about that cross today. This verse 6 in Romans 5, it begins with the word for. And the word for, it therefore ties what follows in verse 6 and beyond. It ties what, that with what has gone before in verse 5. And in verse 5, we read those words, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what we're thinking about today follows on from this message about God's love being poured into our, heart, our hearts. So what we're looking at today in regards to Christ's death, and then in regards to his life after his death, it's all about this amazing love of God that is poured out into our lives. So let's think about love poured out, first of all, in Christ's death. Look what he says in verses 6 to 8. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, though someone would even dare to die. But God chose his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now here there are three things said about those for whom Christ died. They are weak, they are ungodly, they are sinners. They are weak. Literally, the word here means they are without strength. Jesus has died for those who are totally unable to do anything to save themselves. Those who are unable even to lift a tiny little finger in regards to their own salvation. Jesus has died for the hopeless and the helpless spiritually. Secondly, he's died for the ungodly. And the ungodly are those who are opposed to God, are those who are out of step of God, are those who have shut God out of their lives. Now, this idea of ungodliness, Paul introduces back in chapter 1 in verse 18, where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There he speaks of God's wrath being poured out against the ungodly. Ungodliness represents all that God hates, all that God despises. And God's wrath comes down upon ungodliness. And yet here we're told that Christ has died for the ungodly, for those whose lives are filled with what God despises. And thirdly, Christ has died for sinners. A sinner is literally someone who fails to hit the mark, who fails to hit the mark that God has set. A sinner fails to measure up to God's perfect standard. Now, Paul's argument here is fascinating. Look what he says in verse 7 here. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now, a righteous person is someone who is upright, who is respectable, who is moral. And Paul said, well, scarcely one will die for such a person. Whereas a, a good person, who is someone who is good, who is filled with goodness in their life, which is shown to other people, perhaps, Paul says, perhaps someone might dare to die for such a person. And in this world, we do see that people at times do die for good people. One of my favorite films is a film which came out a few years ago called Special Forces. It is the story of French special forces who are sent to Afghanistan to rescue a journalist who has been kidnapped by the Taliban. This is a, a journalist, a lady journalist, who has been seeking to tell the story of Afghan women who are being suppressed and suffering so much. And so these special forces are sent in to rescue this woman. And in doing this, several of this unit are killed. They willingly die for this good woman. And many films and stories that we can see are about 
soldiers and special forces sacrificing themselves for the good, for the innocent. What you don't see in these films are the, the special forces, the soldiers, willingly sacrificing for those who are evil and particularly wicked. And yet, what do we read about Jesus here in verse 8? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for the weak, for the ungodly, for sinners. Jesus died for those in whom, from his pure, holy, and perfect perspective, there was no good in them. There was nothing attractive about them to him. In his purity, he just sees a life full of sin. Their lives were filled with all that he opposed, all that he hated, all that he despised. Their lives were filled with ungodliness and sin. And he dies for them. If we don't see the, how amazing that is, we, we fail to grasp the extent of God's hatred towards sin. Something of God's hatred towards sin can be seen in how he sends the unsaved to an eternal hell of suffering. Think about that. Think about who you would call decent people who are not saved. God will send them to hell forever because God despises, God hates the sin in them. He hates their lives so much that he will send them to hell. And yet the amazing thing is Jesus has died for people like us who are filled with this sin, filled with this ungodliness. And this is what makes the sacrifice of the cross so amazing. And this sacrifice, it's, remember, it's not just the idea of Jesus. It says here in verse 6, it happened at the right time. It happened according to the time, the will, and the plan of God the Father. This was something God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were totally immersed in. They looked upon a world of the sinful, the ungodly, and in love, Jesus is sent to die for them. God's love is poured out in Christ's death. But secondly, God's love is poured out in Christ's life in verses 9 to 10. Now, Paul's focus on Christ's death for people while they were still weak, ungodly, and sinful, his purpose was to instill within believers great hope and certainty for the future. That's what, why he's teaching this. Look what he says in verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, Paul, what he's arguing here is that since Christ died for us when we were the weak, the ungodly, and the sinful, since we have been justified, since we have been declared righteous through his blood, which is entirely an act of grace, when we were in that terrible state of sin, we can be sure in regards to wrath to come for sin that we will be saved the wrath at the end of the world. We will be sheltered from it. We will be safe in Jesus because if while we are sinners he died for us, we can be sure we will remain safe when the wrath comes at the end of the world. 
You see, our justification is entirely an act of God's grace through Jesus, through his shed blood on the cross. Because it is an act of grace, because it's something entirely done by God, it cannot be lost. God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't justify a sinner one day and then judge them and condemn them at the end of the world on another day. Our justification, we are declared right with God when we were at our worst, our ungodliness and sinfulness. Therefore, there's nothing that can come into our lives that can take our right standing with God away. When God saw the worst about you and sent Jesus to die to save you, there is nothing going to stop God from carrying that salvation through to the world to come. You see, if salvation depended on us, if we are the people who triggered the sacrifice of Jesus, if it was up to us, if we somehow triggered that sacrifice of Jesus, then we could do something possibly that would trigger God changing his mind. But what Paul is teaching, it's nothing to do with us. It's all of grace. It's all of God's plan. It's all of God's love. And those things do not change. And so if through faith you're right with God, you know you're safe when the wrath of God comes in this world. Our only hope, our only assurance as we think of the future judgment of God has to be the sacrifice of Christ, the shed blood of Jesus. When that is where our hope is fixed, then our hope is sure. Our hope is certain. We have the shelter and the blood, trust in the blood of Jesus to cover us. But Paul pushes his argument further here for our encouragement and assurance. Look what he says in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, what is he saying here? So the Christian can say, if while I was an enemy of God, in my unsaved state, Jesus died for me, how much more secure am I now in my reconciled state, now that I'm a friend of God, how much secure I must be? While I was an enemy, Jesus died for me. What will Jesus do for me now through his life? Now that Jesus lives, now that I'm a reconciled friend of God through Jesus, what more will Jesus do for me? Yes, Jesus died for me, his enemy. Now Jesus lives for me, his friend. And what will be the result of Jesus living for me, his friend? Look again, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now the key thing is, what does this mean to be saved by his life? Well, it has to partly refer to the wrath of God to come at the end of the world. But I think it means more than that. Being saved by Christ's life has to refer to Christ bringing to us the full benefits of his salvation. Jesus lives to give to us the full benefits of being rescued from sin. Yes, being saved includes 
being rescued from God's wrath, and of course that's so important, but being saved includes becoming a new creation, being reconciled to God, being adopted into his family, continuing to know his presence, his fellowship, his power in our lives day by day. Jesus lives to pour into our lives the benefits of what he's achieved for us. Now, Paul speaks a bit more about this in Romans 6, and I'll just we'll put it up here on the screen, where he says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised, raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul is saying here, Christ, when he was raised from the dead, this new life that Paul, that Jesus has after being resurrected, it's an indestructible life. Jesus can never die again. No one can ever kill the resurrected Christ. And when we are joined to this resurrected Christ, through rebirth, through faith, the benefits of his indestructible life will come to us. The resurrected Christ will bring to the believer new life in God, a life of richness, a life of fullness, a life of the Hebrew shalom, a state of peace and contentment, a life of experiencing the love of God, which is beyond limits. That's what he's getting at here. Jesus lives to bring us the full benefits of what it means to be a Christian. This is why in Philippians 3, Paul could say he counted everything as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He knew Jesus in such a way, it brought such a love, a joy, a delight in his heart, everything else counted as nothing. Do we know anything of that in our lives? Is there such a, a richness in our relationship with Jesus? that we can honestly say all else is rubbish in comparison. One of my favorite parts of Paul's writings are Ephesians 3, and beginning at verse 16, his great prayer for the Ephesians, where he asks for the believers to be strengthened by the Spirit in their inner being, so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Now listen, He's praying this for Christians, for people who are saved, for people who already have Jesus living within them. His prayer is that they would have more and more of Christ living within their hearts. And he goes on and says in Ephesians 3, so they'll reach out to grasp something of the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ, of the fullness of God. Paul's arguments here in, in Romans 5 is, while it is wonderful that we receive through Jesus' death, being justified in God's sight, declared righteous before God, Paul is arguing there's so much more now to experience through our relationship with the living Christ. How does this happen? Well, I think, first of all, you need to know that it's possible that this can happen for you, that you can go deeper with Jesus. You need to pray for a, 
a greater, a richer experience of Christ every day. You need to spend unrushed time in the Lord's presence, in His Word, and in prayer. You need to be really diligent in coming into His presence in public worship and in public prayer meetings. And then you need to live in the light of this truth. We need to dwell with Christ. We need to spend time with Christ and to experience more and more of Jesus in our lives. Yes, He died to save you, but He lives for you to experience more on the wonder of what it means to be a redeemed child of God in a relationship with Christ every day. So God's love is poured out to us through Christ's death and through Christ's life. And very briefly, God's love is poured out to us for joy in the Lord. Look at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, this is the third time we have come across this word rejoice in this chapter. In verse 2, Paul speaks about rejoicing in the hope of glory of God. In verse 3, he speaks about rejoicing in our sufferings. Now, in verse 11, he says rejoicing in God. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you remember what I said, I think, last week, that this word rejoice or rejoicing can be translated as boasting in other parts of this letter. The word means that whatever we focus on, whatever we boast or rejoice in, it is something that consumes us. It is something that takes over our lives more and more. And this is telling us something here very important about Christianity when Paul says that we will rejoice in God. Christianity is, is not just a matter of being forgiven and know we'll go to heaven one day. Christianity is not just a matter of being forgiven and trying to live a good, upright life and reading your Bible and praying a bit. Christianity is about having a living relationship with the risen Christ. The purpose of Christianity the purpose of this salvation is that we will be a people consumed by God. Remember, Adam and Eve, before they sinned, their focus was God. They lived with God. God was at the center of their lives. When they sinned, their focus became on themselves, and they were aware suddenly that they were naked. The center of sin is that we were I. So sin takes the focus from God to the focus on ourselves. Salvation reverses that process. The purpose of salvation, yes, is to get us to heaven. Yes, is to save us from hell. But the purpose of salvation is that we will be a people no longer consumed by ourselves, but a people consumed by God, by Christ, consumed by His worship, consumed by His will, consumed by a relationship with the living God. You see, Christianity is not just about accepting a creed where you trust in Jesus' death to get to heaven, to be saved from your sin. Christianity is about Christ. Christianity is about knowing Christ. It's about having a relationship in Christ. Christianity is about rejoicing 
in the wonderful God who is revealed through Jesus. And really, Paul's desire, Paul's prayer here, is that his people would be a people more and more consumed by Jesus. And what's the way he put it, writing to Philippians? For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Can we say that? For me to live above everything else is Christ. Jesus has died to reconcile us to God. Jesus lives so we can know him. We can be consumed by him. That we can live for Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we just pray for your grace and help. And Father, the, the real challenge here is to, to focus on Jesus, to know more and more of Christ in our lives. Father, this isn't something we can just work up. It's not just something produced by our efforts. It's something, Father, as we dwell in prayer and dwell in your word, dwell in worship, it is something that your Holy Spirit sheds abroad in our hearts in a fresh way. Oh, Father, that we would be a people who are described as others as, as fanatics, not of religion, but fanatics of Jesus, that we would be a people consumed by Christ. Oh, Father, for such grace we pray. Amen.